And now let's take our Bibles again and turn to Romans chapter 6. And we'll read once again verses 1 through 14 of Romans 6. I keep reading all the verses because they really do hang together. And the latter verses, starting with verse 11, are really built on the first 10 verses, as I've pointed out over and again now. But let's just read the 14 verses of the first 14 verses of Romans 6. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord." Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Well, let's once again look to God and ask for his help as we come to the ministry of the word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Romans, and we thank you for Romans 6 and the things we have been learning from it. Continue to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Especially help us today to learn more about how we are to live the Christian life, how we are to walk in newness of life, how we, how we are to fight the good fight of the faith, how we are to mortify sin, how we are to serve our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So hear us and help us in these things by granting the present aid of your Holy Spirit both to preach and to hear, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me just briefly review what we've seen by just reading a couple of the verses here in the latter part of the section I've read and making some comments. 
First of all, verses 11 and 12, remember that Paul is just teaching things that are true about the Christian based on their union with Christ since they have come to know Christ. That's the first 10 verses. And then he comes to an imperative, a command, reckon yourselves uh, in verse 11. And as I mentioned, it's the first command, not only of this section of Romans, but really of the whole book of Romans. And so it says in verses 11 and 12, likewise, you also, in light of what we saw in verse, verses 1 to 10, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And I just want to quote a comment, commentator here on, on this point. He says, the conclusion to be drawn from the security that believers enjoy due to God's gracious act for them, that is, in saving them in Christ, the conclusion to be drawn from that is not that they may go on contentedly living just as they have always lived, but rather that now they must fight. They must not let sin go on reigning unopposed in their daily life, but must revolt in the name of their rightful ruler, God, against sin's usurping rule. The believer has died to sin, as Paul has been saying, as, and as I've been underscoring, but that doesn't mean sin is yet completely eradicated from the believer's heart and life. We have remaining sin. We'll see a lot more about that in the weeks to come. Today, our focus is on verse 13, and after what we read in verse 12 about not letting sin reign, we have verse 13, which says, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We could see it this way, this transition from uh, verse 11 or verse 12 to verse 13. Verse 12 is the big picture of the Christian life in a sense, in terms of whom you are serving. Who is your master? And Paul's Exhortation is, don't let sin be. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. But then in verse 13, he comes down more to the specifics, talking about how a Christian doesn't let sin reign in his day-to-day -day living. And that's what we're going to look at today. We could go look at a good related text to these two verses, 2 Timothy 2 verse 4 where Paul says to Timothy, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That's what Paul is talking about. How do we serve our new master? I've pointed out in the last few messages that the difference between indicative, something that is true or something that has happened. That's the first 10 verses of this chapter. And then an imperative, which is a command that comes from the indicative. You've died to sin. You've risen and now you live life to God. Make sure you live that way. Reckon yourself to be dead, but alive to God. And then verse 12, don't let sin reign. 
And now, verse 13, some more specifics about how you don't let sin reign. So that's our text today, verse 13. No ambition on my part, just one verse. God willing, I can do it in one message. But verse 13 reads this way, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So there's the text. We can break it down into two imperatives, and that's the way I'm going to approach it. We have a negative and a positive. The first one is the negative imperative, and a negative imperative is also called a prohibition. In other words, it's a don't. Don't do this. Kind of like many of the Ten Commandments come in that form. You shall not do this, that, or the other thing. So it says there, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. So let's break that down. I'm doing it with questions. What do you do in terms, if, of, if you're going to obey Paul's imperative here, his prohibition, what do you do? Well, the answer is, you don't present. Don't present. We'll look at what it is you present and so on. But to present something, uh, the meaning here is to put it at someone's disposal. You have the same word used in Matthew 26, 53, where Jesus says that when he's among his captors and persecutors and tormentors and ultimately those who are going to crucify him, he says, don't you realize that I could call upon my father and he would immediately send me 12 legions of angels. And the word in the Greek there for the send is he would pre present them to me, the same word we have here. In other words, he would put them at my disposal that I could use them to fight for me. That's the idea. And the word is used again later in Romans 6. Let's just look at verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness? You make yourself available, or here, as Paul says in verse 13, your members available to them. You shouldn't be doing that. Likewise, verse 19, Paul says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members, let's just for right now say your body parts, as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, past tense, meaning when you were not a Christian, that's what you used to do. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So what do you do here? You're not to present yourself or your, your members. And that leads to the next thing. Well, what do you not present then? Well, the answer is your members. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. What are your members? Well, the literal way to take this word would be to be your limbs. So your arms and your hands in your legs, in your feet, your limbs. I think it's likely that Paul is just using that as a figure of speech. He does mean your actual limbs, your physical body parts. But I think he's pointing at, and may especially mean, every part of you, every faculty, including your mind. But the point is, he's listing the parts of the whole here, we could say. Just turn back for an example of 
how people do this uh, back in Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Presenting their body parts, if you will, as instruments of unrighteousness. Here Paul is quoting the Old Testament to speak about the ungodly and how defiled all sinners are, how totally depraved they are, apart from the grace of God in Christ. And speaking about sinners in general, he says, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. They're using their member, this little member here, to sin. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There are people who are ready to go anywhere that they can commit wickedness as long as they get something out of it. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is saying, you're a Christian now. Don't live that way. Don't let your members, let's put it in terms of evil speech like Paul does in Romans 3. Don't let your lips and your tongue and your mouth be used in that way. Don't present those members for evil purposes. This is his point. Do not allow that in your life. So what do you do? You don't present. What do you not present? Your members what do you present them for? What should you avoid presenting them for? What's the presentation he's talking about here? Well, he's saying you don't present them as instruments of unrighteousness. Instruments of unrighteousness. Instruments is a good translation. Uh, it's, it's a general translation of the word. It's a general word. You could be more specific. My margin of my New King James Version says that that word could also be translated weapons. And that's what some commentators prefer because it's a word that could be translated weapons. Uh, back in Ephesians 6, when we looked at the whole armor of God, there's an English word that's taken from the Greek word in that passage, panoply. And that means the whole armor or all the armor. The word pan in um, Greek, is a word that means all or every. So panoply is all the armor. The word that's left is opla, and that's the word you have here. So it could be translated weapons. Don't present your members as weapons. And that fits here because it's talking in verse 12 about not letting sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let him be a king over you. Or another way this word could be translated is tools, and that would also fit if you think about someone working as a slave for somebody. That's in view here as well. So whatever it is, let's use the word instruments. That's what's in my Bible. Could be weapons. But don't present your members as instruments or weapons. What kind of weapons? It says weapons or instruments of unrighteousness. In other words... Don't let your body as a Christian, any part of it, don't let any faculty of your being be used for evil purposes. Don't let them be used in ways that will produce no good fruit whatsoever. And that's an understatement. In fact, look how Paul states it in chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
looking back on your old life again, he says, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? You used to give yourself all your faculties, all the members of your body to sinful things. And he says, for the end of those things is death. In other words, those things are not good things. They're bad things. You're ashamed of them now when you look back. Why continue to do them? They end in death. Why be so dangerous? If you call yourself a Christian, why live like that? Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Remember how Paul started this epistle in one of his early statements in Romans 1.18 was that the wrath of God is re being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why do things that are calling for the wrath of God from heaven upon people. So don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And then finally, the question is about this prohibition. Well, to whom or what should we not prevent, present them? And the answer is to sin. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. So sin here is being seen as a master. Notice verse 14 at the beginning. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin is seen as a master. And the point is, you don't present as a Christian, you should not present any part of yourself to sin for unrighteous purposes or for evil purposes purposes. That's the statement of the prohibition. But then we come to the command, the last part of verse 13. But instead, do this, present yourselves to God. This is the positive statement, the command. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So let's break this down the same way. We'll ask the same questions. What do you do? Well, here the answer is a positive thing. You present. He says, but present yourselves to God. So you present. Let me just give you a couple of biblical illustrations here, and then I'll add one of my own. Let's go over to Romans 12 for a moment. Romans 12. Here Paul is doing a similar thing. In Romans 9 through 11, he's speaking about the sovereign grace and mercy of God in saving not only Jews, but also Gentiles. And Paul's saying, especially now, it's Gentiles that he's saving, but he hasn't, he hasn't written off all the Jews. And then he talks about who it is that's going to become a Christian, and it's those that God is pleased to save by his sovereign grace. And then he comes similarly to an imperative. I beseech you, therefore, Romans 12.1, in light of these things, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that I've just been recounting to you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's the same word, but it's a little bit different picture. It's not talking about weapons here. 
but it's still presenting and it's saying, give yourself to God. Here the idea is to just make yourself a sacrifice and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Wherever you call me to go, I'll go. However painful what you want me to do may be, I will do it. I'll be a living sacrifice. You present yourself to God. Here, I'm, here I am. Here is all of mine. Take me. You could look at the picture that we have in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We won't take the time to go there and read it, but it's verses 22 to 28. Hannah, the woman who had no children, pled with God for a child. God gave her Samuel. And Samuel then, she ended up presenting to God. Remember how she said it. After he was weaned, she took him to the temple. At that time, it was the tabernacle. And she presented him to the high priest. And she said, I have lent him to the Lord. Which, it was a permanent loan. She was saying, Lord, you, not Lord, but to the high priest, you take him and you do with him what you will. I want him to be involved in the Lord's service. I present him to you for that purpose. And that's what we should be doing with our members. Or I could use just a homey illustration. Imagine that my neighbor wanted to mow his lawn. And I noticed it was getting long. I think I used a lawnmower uh, illustration not that long ago. <laughs> I'm consumed with it because I got a new mower last fall. And I'm actually looking forward to the spring. But anyway. My neighbor's mower is, is, is not working. And I say, how come you're letting your lawn get so long? He said, well, my, my lawnmower isn't working. I haven't been able to get it fixed. And so I might say, use my mower. What would I be doing? I would be offering him the use of it. I would be presenting it to him. That's the idea. And you use it as an instrument to cleaning up your act over there. So that's it. Presenting. Second thing, what do you present? Well, the answer is here in verse uh, 13 of chapter 6, not just your members, but also yourself. Notice, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So what do you present? Well, here it's first yourselves, not just your members, but yourselves and Martin Lloyd-Jones on this point asks the question, why does he say here yourselves, but in, verse, uh, in the first part of the verse, he only said your members. But here he says first yourselves and then your members. And his point may be correct. He says, because it's really impossible for a true Christian to offer himself to sin because he's a new man. He can't do that. But he says, but he can offer his members. In other words, he can temporarily commit acts of sin. That may be the thing that he's getting at. I think he's also emphasizing how wholly devoted to God we should be as Christians, like it says in Romans 12. But regardless, he's making that point. We are to first offer ourselves. I'll go back to my mower illustration. Imagine if my neighbor, who's 83 years old, said to me, Thanks uh, for offering your use of your lawnmower, but I have a riding mower and yours isn't a riding mower. I don't know if I can do it. And so I say, all right, I'll do it. So I would offer to him my implement, but also I would offer to him myself. 
to mow his lawn. That's what's being, what's being told here. Ourselves and our members, every part of us, we are to offer to God, present to him as instruments of righteousness. The whole of you is what you are to present to God. We sang about that in a sense, we could say. We sang about a number of the specifics in the hymn we sang just before the preaching this morning. Hymn number 492. We said that we want to give God our members. Take my hands. Take my feet. Take my voice. My lips. My intellect. My love. As if the writer is saying, well, take every part of me. And that's what the writer is saying. Because then she says, take my life. Take my heart. Take myself. They're all part of the lyrics. That's the idea. What are you to present? Yourself. Your all. Everything. Every one of your members. Every one of your faculties. To God. That's what we're to do as Christians. That's what this text tells us to do. Then what for? Well, it's again as instruments, as instruments of righteousness. We're to offer them to God as instruments. That means we're to offer them to him for what is good. We're to offer them to him as, um, for what is obedience to God's commandments. That's what we're to offer them for. We're to offer our whole selves and every part of us to God for whatever he, as our commanding officer, desires of us. That obviously means, first and foremost, obedience to every one of his commandments in the Bible. And of course, it means submission to every part of his will for us in terms of what we call his secret or decretive will for us. In other words, well, Lord, I didn't envision being right here doing just this at this point in my life. I envisioned doing something that would be much more agreeable to me but I know that my being here is agreeable to you because you're the one who placed me here. And so presenting yourself as an instrument of righteousness to him is that you say, so I'm going to happily submit to your will for my life at this point. That's what you're going to do. You present yourself to God your members to him as instruments of righteousness. And again, then the to whom or the to what, it's to God. To God. Verse 13 again, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He is your new boss. He is the one, to use the language of 2 Timothy 2.4 that I quoted earlier, he is the one who has enlisted you as a soldier. Present yourselves to him. That's Christianity compared to unbelief and ungodliness and worldliness. 
But there's one other thing in this part of the verse that wasn't in the first part of the verse. Paul gives an explanation as to why. Why should we do this? He didn't have it in the first part of the verse about not presenting yourself as instruments to righteousness, but it really is a reason for that as well. And here's what it is. It's as being alive from the dead. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. There's the answer to the new question. Why? Because you're alive now. Because you can do this. Because God has made you alive. You're alive from the dead. As we've been looking at in Romans 6, this huge change has occurred. You've been taken out of the realm of sin and condemnation and death. And you've been placed into the realm of righteousness and justification and life. There's your reason. Why present yourself to God? Because God has made everything different. And now you can do that. You now live in a different realm. All things are new. Present yourself to God. That's what the whole first part of this chapter is about. That God has changed things in Christ. You're a new creature in him. You live in a new realm. You have a different boss, a different master. So there's the text. Verse 13 with its two imperatives, a negative and a positive. Now we come for the rest of our time to observations and applications. <clears throat> observations and applications. And the first uh, part of, the, uh, of those is this. I want to say some things about the battle against sin. Every Christian is in a battle against sin. You're battling with God, for Him, against sin. That, by definition, is the Christian life. There's a sense in which you could say that um, unbelievers are also in a battle that involves sin, but sadly, they're not battling against sin. They're battling with it against God. They're battling with it against themselves. They're doing things that are terribly unwholesome and terribly unhealthy and dangerous for them. But if you're a Christian, you're in a battle against sin. So some observations about that to start. The Bible uses various images, various ways to tell us about various ways and various tactics that we are to employ in this battle or this war against sin. Paul talks about fighting the good fight. That's the battle I'm talking about. That's the fight. That's the war. And I've mentioned some of these images and these tactics in recent messages here in Romans 6. I think within the last week, I think, last week, maybe both messages, I used the language that we should be mortifying sin. And that's, that's a broad category for the battle against sin. Because mortify simply means kill. We should be killing sin. I quoted Colossians 3 and verse 5. Mortify, or the modern language is, put to death your members that are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. You're to kill sin. You could visualize it this way. You're to, you're to be taking your weapon, your gun, and shooting it, trying to kill it. Your dagger, trying to put it to death. Your hands, if you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat, as you envision it, with, vision it with sin, and you're trying to strangle out every sin you see in your life. That's the Christian life. That's one of the tactics to use against sin, to kill it. 
But then there's another one. I talked about this last time as well. Sometimes the Bible says, abstain from sin. It doesn't say jump on top of it, get your knee on its chest and try to strangle it and squeeze the breath out of it. That's mortifying it. It's a just run away from it. Run away. Flee is biblical language. I quoted last time, I think we looked it up, 1 Peter 2.11. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We all have them. And what you should do is abstain from them. You know that going down that path means for you, you're probably going to fall into sin, or at least you're going to be sorely tempted. Well, is there another way to live your life without going down that path then? Like Solomon said in Proverbs 5 to his son, don't go near the door of the adulterous woman. In other words, take a different street home. Is there another way for you to live your life? Do it, but abstain from sin. Flee from immorality. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from immorality. Or Paul said the same thing in a different way in 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee youthful lusts. Run away. Don't go near them. Isn't that what Joseph did? I think the chapter is Genesis 38. Joseph is in Potiphar's household. He's got a nice job now. He's out of prison. The Lord has really blessed him, raised him up. But now what a mess he faces. Potiphar's wife wants him to commit adultery with her. What does Joseph do? He doesn't strangle her. But one day when she grabbed him and had a hold of his cloak, he left it in her hands and he ran out of the house. You know what he was doing? Fleeing immorality. He was abstaining from sin. Fighting against sin, yes. Not letting it overcome him and reign over him, but using a different tactic. I talked about that last week when I talked about pushing away from the table when you've know, you know you've had your limit and you shouldn't continue. That's abstaining from sin. But then there's a third tactic, and that's what we have here. Romans 6, verse 13. And there's overlap in these things, of course. But here I would, I would uh, define it this way. The tactic in view in Romans 6, 13 is re resisting sin. Resisting. Standing your ground and resisting. It's refusing to give in. Note the language of verse 13. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Sin says, give it to me. And you say, no. And then in a positive way, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. This is another way to engage in that battle against sin. You kill, you abstain or flee, you resist. You refuse. You say no. Think of our Savior in the desert, Matthew 4, Luke 4. He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He's tired. He's hungry. He's an open target, in a sense, for Satan because of his physical condition. And so Satan comes at him. He gives Jesus everything he has. What does Jesus do? He didn't run out of the desert. 
God, he knew the Father wanted him there to, for his time was not yet up to be there. He stood there, held his ground. He said no. And Satan hit him with what he believed were his three best temptations. And each time Jesus resisted, each time he refused, each time he said no. Let's look at Titus 2 and verse 12. I think it's a good text, and I'll tell you why, especially I think that. But Titus 2, verse 12, for a moment. It's part of a long sentence that goes through verse 14. So let me just start with verse 11, but I'll just end with verse 12. In Titus 2... <clears throat> Paul says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's with those words, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Paul is using this saying to use this method of fighting against sin, resistance and refusal. One of the reasons I, 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 I turn to this passage is that um, I've always liked the, the um, uh, translation of the NIV at this point. It's a good translation, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. It's more of a um, um, non-literal translation the way they say it, but I like the way it pictures it. It says in the NIV, the grace of God teaches us not to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, but to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Say no. Resist. Refuse. Be like Jesus. Or, and I want to read part of this, be like Christian in John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. If you're familiar with it, you're familiar with this section about when Christian encounters Apollyon. If you're not familiar with it and you're serious about Christianity, you should read Pilgrim's Progress. Someday you should read it. It has a lot of good pictures about this kind of, this aspect of the Christian life and many, many others. So Christian, he, he's become a Christian. He's been saved and he's journeying toward heaven, the heavenly city, toward glory. He's now making his way through the valley of humiliation. And he encounters Apollyon. And Apollyon represents the devil. And for purposes of Romans 6 here, where it says that you should not present your members to sin... To obey it in its lusts, you shouldn't, you shouldn't present your members to sin. Sin is really being personified here. Because it says sin should not be your master. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Do not let sin... It's painting sin as a master. The old boss, like I said. And so we could look at sin here in the same way that Bunyan is looking at the devil who wants to overcome us. So here he is. He's going through the valley of humiliation. He encounters the devil, Apollyon. And now let's go into the text. And 
what I read is going to be the text of Pilgrim's Progress at some points abridged and modernized by me. All right, so you say, well, that's not how it says it in the original. I, I get that. It says, picking up in the text, it says, as he encountered Apollyon, Christian resolved to stand his ground. So Apollyon says to him, where have you come from and where are you going? And Christian replies, I am come from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil. And I am going to the city of Zion. And the devil, Apollyon says, by this I perceive that you are one of my subjects. For all that country is mine, and I am the prince and the god of it. How is it then that you have run away from your king? If I did not hope that you might yet do me more service, I would strike you now at one blow to the ground. Christian replies to him, I was born indeed in your dominions, but your service was hard and your wages such that a man could not live on, for the wages of sin is death. So when I was come to years, I did as other prudent persons do, try to find a way to improve my situation. Napoleon replies to Christian, There is no prince that will so lightly lose his subjects, and I am not ready to lose you. But since you complain of your service and your wages, be content to go back. What our country will afford, I here promise to give you. But Christian says, but I have given myself to another, even to the king of princes. And how can I with fairness go back with you? I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. How can I then go back from this and not be hanged as a traitor? To which Apollyon says, you did the same to me. And yet I am willing to overlook it all. If now you will just turn again and go back. And Christian says, I like the service of the prince under whose banner I now stand. I like his wages, his servants, his government, his company, and his country better than yours. I am his servant, and I will follow him. And here I break from the narrative. At this point, Apollyon tells Christians that if he does that, it is not going to go well with him, that most of Christ's servants come to terrible ends. Sometimes they even suffer martyrdom. And he blames Christian for already having been unfaithful to Christ. In other words, pointing out sins that he still commits. Then we come back to uh, Bunyan's narrative. It says, Then Apollyon broke out into a grievous rage, saying, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. I have come out on purpose to withstand you. And brethren, let me just interject. We can personify sin as a real, though not personal, force and reality that views things, if we could say it that way, the exact same way and acts the same way. So Christian says, Apollyon, beware what you do 
For I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. And as you know the story, then they battle and Christian prevails. But do you see what he did? He looked at his conversion. He looked at his new life as a servant of the living God, his Savior. And he determined that he was going to stay in that life. He determined that he was going to resist going back. He determined he was going to continue to serve his new master. That is what Paul is telling us to do, brethren, here in Romans 6, 12 and 6, 13. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, though it used to have its way with you. Don't let it do that anymore. And don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Because someone might say, well, I can't. You know what? You still can. And Paul is saying, don't do it. That's it. So those are part of my first observations and applications, the battle against sin. We're looking at it from this standpoint. The battle against sin means resist and refuse to go back to it. And then secondly, some examples of ways that we should practically apply this. Some examples of ways we should practically apply it. And I want to do this by just speaking about some of our lusts, brethren, and some of our ways that we use our members. There's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. But let's just focus first, start out with that lust that Paul speaks about in Colossians 3, 5. Mortify your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, etc. Think about how the eyes can be involved in that. Think of Job's statement in Job 31, verse 1. Job thought of his eyes Job had in mind Paul's view of sanctification, didn't he? When he said there, I made a covenant with my eyes. Covenant with your eyes? Yeah, a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a maiden. This, it was the same teaching of our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that you should not look at a woman to lust after her. And that's what Job said. And he put it in the way Paul does it. He was saying, here's my covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to use you two guys as members, instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Don't look. Well, how can I help it when someone... Teach yourself to look somewhere else. But don't use your eyes as instruments of unrighteousness and say, I couldn't help it because I didn't. I'm not the one who ordained that I would see what I saw at that moment. Present your eyes, brethren, not to sinful lust. Present your eyes to God. Look at things He wants you to look at. What about your mind, your brain? That's a physical organ. But we use it to think, don't we? Don't present that member to sin. I don't need to see something to be lusting in my mind. And whatever the sin is. But if it's this kind of sin, I don't need my eyes at the moment to commit sin. I can be all by myself. Could be sitting in a room doing something, but thinking about something very unclean and very wicked in my mind. 
imagining things. Don't do what the Bible is saying. Don't use your mind that way. But present your mind to God, your brain to God. Present it to Him by doing what we were exhorted in Philippians 4.8 by Pastor Hoffmeyer some couple of years ago now or more maybe, where he said that we should think on things that are good and just and noble and praiseworthy and not on unclean things. That's, that's presenting your mind, your brain to God. And it would help you if you're in the midst of temptation because every Christian has certain things that he uses to try to fight against sin. And we should always be, try, be trying to use the whole armor of God, shouldn't we? The, every means that God has given us to use. And I've just found it helpful this last several days as I'm focusing on this passage to keep this picture in my mind. And I'm tempted to sin in this way or that way. And I, and I, and I say, Lord, don't let me use my mind that way. Don't let me use my tongue that way. Let me present it to you as a member. In your whole body, we think of, again, of this sin of uncleanness. How in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells the Corinthians, your, your body is not an instrument that should be joined to a harlot. Shouldn't be joined to anyone but your spouse. That's how you should use your body as your member, your instrument. It should be an instrument of righteousness. Or think about how, especially with our um, digital devices, whether it's our computer or our tablet or our phone, how we can sin in this area with our fingers by the buttons we press or don't press. So you're facing that every time you pick up that device or sit in front of that device. I hope you'll remember this. I hope it'll come to your mind if you face temptations with electronic devices in this coming week. God, help me not to use my fingers as instruments of unrighteousness. Help me not to present these members, these digits, to sin as instruments of wickedness. Help me not to do that, Lord. Help me to present them to you. Let every click of my computer be one that I could say, yeah, this is what I, I, I clicked on. You got a problem with that? even when no one is there. And that works, brethren, regarding any other kind of sin that doesn't fall into the matter of immorality. How about clicking to bring up images on your computer that nobody would ever label unclean or immoral but the fact that you did it for two hours when you have other far more important and better things to do and you couldn't afford the two hours, you don't think wasting God's time is sinful? Lord, help me to present my members for things that are good. Or how about as a, ch as a child, whether younger or older, in your parents' house, under their authority, your Christian parents, and they say, I don't ever want you going on this website or that website. I don't want you using social media unless I know about it. And here you are with your fingers and you've got the opportunity. You know what it's called if you hit the wrong buttons? It's, it's not called oops 
or that's not really me. It's called presenting your members to sin for unrighteousness. See it for what it is and present them to God. Or don't constantly click on things that you know you're going to have to pay for and it really constitutes a waste of money. Or, I've disciplined myself not to buy them, but I'm going to keep clicking and looking and drooling, if not outwardly, inwardly. It's called coveting. It's a battle we're in, brethren. And it has many fronts. And we're called to fight it. Don't present your members for that kind of stuff. Say, I have a new master. He doesn't want me to do it. I'm not doing it. You could say the same about your mouth and your tongue and your lips. Evil speech, that's presenting these members to sin for unrighteousness. Lying is doing the same. Cursing is doing the same. James wrote this, With our tongue, we bless our God and Father. That's how you should present your members to God. Do what you're doing here this morning, brethren. Singing the praises of God. Speaking good things to one another. With our tongue, we bless our God and Father. And with it, we curse men. Christians can still do that. Men who have been made in the likeness of God. James says, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. But present your tongue, your mouth, your lips to God. Listen to Ephesians 4.29. Paul's writing, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearer. Well, I need to end here. So let me, let me close with these words, the words of Joshua. Familiar words, probably a good percentage of you have them somewhere posted on your wall of your house or something like that. Joshua once said to the Israelites as he was ready to go the way of all the earth and die, he said, choose your, for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We could look at Paul as saying that same thing to us here. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether sin leading to unrighteousness, or God leading to righteousness. If you are not a believer, you are faced with that choice every day. You're especially faced with it now as you hear the preaching of the Word of God. What are you going to do? Continue serving sin? There may be certain aspects of it you enjoy. There may be aspects of it you absolutely love. You may be entirely committed and devoted to it. You may think anybody who leaves the service of sin to serve Christ, you may think just like Apollyon did in Bunyan's writing, he's an idiot. Who would do that? You may think that way. But think about Christian's words to Apollyon. He says, your wages are death. 
and that's it. Whatever sweetness you get out of sin now, bank on it. Someday it's going to turn into bitterness. And if you don't repent, once the day of judgment comes, that bitterness will go down to your inmost being. And it will be there, and it will proliferate, and it will be sore pain for the rest of eternity. Choose this day whom you will serve with the facts and the long-term realities in mind. Leave the service of sin and come to Jesus Christ and serve him with all of your life and with every one of your members. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Believers, you face the same decision in a sense. This is what Paul is saying here on a daily basis. You, say, you face a very similar decision that the unbeliever does on a constant basis when you can either present your members in any situation as instruments of unrighteousness to sin or as instruments of righteousness to God. And Paul is saying that you need to choose to do the former. Present your instruments to God, to Christ, to righteousness on a daily basis, on, a, on an hourly basis, on a moment by moment and situation by situation basis. I simply close with these words. May God give us more and more the attitude of Christian as he faced Apollyon, that we might do that and do it with zeal and with all our heart. Let's pray together. Father, how can we respond to such a message as this in any better way than to say with the hymn writer, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, take my feet, take my lips, my tongue, my mouth, take my moments and my days, take my heart, take my life, take me, O Lord. Forgive us for all of our sins and the way that we want to straddle the fence and be in two worlds at once. Help us to say we're done with that and help us to say it on a moment by moment and situation by situation basis. And Father, we also ask that you would move unbelievers to leave the service of sin and of Satan, whose wages are only death, and to come to Jesus Christ and find the blessedness of walking in newness of life. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.